Hello and welcome everybody to According to Andrew number 116, a review of The Rise of Napoleon Bonaparte. So I finally finished this book. Um, it took me a bit. Uh, it's not exactly a short read. It's 500-ish pages, uh, 550 pages. Um, but mainly the summer ended and I started dragging my feet. Um, it was a good book uh, and I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it had a lot of good insights and stuff like that. Um, I, do, I stopped kind of pulling as many insights at the, the end. I just kind of like lost energy to read it. Um, that's not really a the book's fault that's that's uh, on me um but i thought it was a really good book uh the book is by uh robert asprey um the actual uh that is the actual cover on the uh the thumbnail there so that gives you kind of an initial uh look into what it is and uh let's get into it so um the things i really liked about the book were kind of the political intrigue aspects um he dives into kind of the various political moves that napoleon made and kind of uh, his growing up and, and uh, various social interactions that he had and stuff like that. And I found that stuff more interesting uh, than the battlefield tactics type stuff. That was kind of like, it was, the battlefield stuff didn't have as much story. It was just kind of like listing out facts. This happened, these guys went over there, this happened kind of thing. Um, where uh, when he was talking about uh, the political moves and stuff like that, there's a lot, I think, thought the storytelling in the actual uh, biography was a lot better in that regard. So I just found those areas written better. I think it might have had a better impact if I had known and been more familiar with the actual terrain of the areas that he was fighting in, so where he was fighting, I believe, around Toulon um, for the first siege that he was a part of, and then obviously his campaign through Italy and stuff like that, but it goes through all of that, um, and it basically, it starts with basically him being born, and actually some of his stuff that his, his parents did, and him growing up, and it goes all the way to, uh, Austerlitz, um, right, yeah, so that where, that's where that one goes, there's actually a second book by the same guy, uh, called The Reign of Napoleon Bonaparte, that goes from Austerlitz until he passes, um, I don't plan on reading that, because, uh, he, I was interested in knowing about the early life of Napoleon and kind of how he got into power. Uh, that was what I wanted to read the book for. Um, so that's why I decided to read the rise of Napoleon. Um, and now that I have that insight, I am perfectly happy. Maybe that someday I will go back and read the reign of Napoleon. But, um, yeah, in terms of, uh, Napoleon himself, I was very impressed. He's, he gave off like, obviously it's the words of someone else and I wasn't actually there and all that stuff, but based on everything, and you just, you can kind of tell by the way, uh, the soldiers reacted, and, and how inspired they were by Napoleon, and stuff like that, that he was a truly great leader, um, especially militarily, uh, he had his shortcomings, he, he wasn't the greatest, uh, Navy guy, um, and there was kind of issues with that, where basically, he was overly pushing on how he wanted Navy stuff to be done, but his naval officers were so incompetent that, um, they would always find some excuse to not do something, and so, um, even when they gave good advice, uh, you couldn't trust it because they cried wolf so much. So that was an issue. Uh, as a political, uh, person, I thought he was very competent, but, um, his, his military prowess is, re really shines through his style, just how much of a military genius this guy was, um, when you kind of compare his exploits in military versus, um, all of his other, uh, things that he does uh he's obviously very common and does a very good job um in the leadership role which is very rare um i can 
you, it's really only interesting enough. He's Italian, and it's only really the Romans that have this quality where they're both very good generals and very good administrators. It's a quality that is quite rare in most societies. Um, and I, maybe I'm I'm just not thinking of like I I don't know the history of Frederick the Great, and I believe uh, who is the guy that led uh, Sweden in like the Winter War. Um, but anyway, he was he was one of uh, Sweden's great kings, and he he might have been a good administrator. I just don't know the history of uh, those guys, so I it could be me being skewed. But I mean, you have you have Napoleon, you have Caesar. Uh, Alexander was notoriously Alexander the Great was notoriously not a very good administrator. Um, who else? Uh, Sulla, kinda. I like. He set up some stuff, but, like, it fell apart the instant he wasn't there. So it's like, how good of an administrator are you, are you really? Uh, but he did at least try to fix things. That one's kind of hard to, to uh, hard call. But, um, you know, you're, basically you're going to be pulling from Roman history because that was how they ran their society. You had to be both a good administrator and a good general. And it was a very rare quality to have. Um, and so it was kind of interesting to read a more contemporary uh, story of someone who has those two qualities as it is, it is, uh, such a rare quality, um, it was really interesting to kind of see, uh, very early on, um, how the degradation of the French monarchy, uh, looks a lot like our society right now, and I actually have a, another video on that, um, that you guys can check out, it is called, give me a sec, um, that is the wrong thing, it is called, here we go, uh, depopulation, the price for power, and that's where I kind of go and compare the, uh, French monarchy and some of the stuff they're doing to uh, the stuff that's going on with our uh, things right now. Um, so if you guys are interested, you can go uh, check that out. Um, so yeah, he was, he was, uh, I was really impressed with how much of, you know, one, one quality that I think is really important in a leader is uh, never asking more of someone than you expect of yourself. And I think Napoleon seemed to embody that generally uh, in almost all of his dealings in leadership. He would ask a lot of people, but he never asked more than he was able, he was willing or able to uh, do himself, which I uh, was very impressed by. Um, and in terms of general takeaways, uh, I think that is about it. Uh, I do If you are interested in Napoleon's early life, um, I do think this is a good book for uh, reading that, so I suggest it off of that. Um, and now we'll kind of dive into some of my observations and, and takeaways that I got uh, from this book. Um, to, okay, so uh, obviously there's the elite problem. I go into that in that other video, so please go see that. For that, uh, it'll be linked in the corner and also in the description. Um, so one thing that was really interesting is how much the British Empire looked like the American Empire of today when dealing with Napoleon. It is uncanny, uh, you know, how, uh, like father, like son, right? Where the British were just, it, you can see how when America deals in various uh, politics nowadays, um, their general takeaway is to just be exceedingly obtuse for no real reason. And American get away with this because they're an island nation. They're, no one else has a navy that can really challenge it. And Britain had the same kind of uh, exorbitant privilege in that regard uh, in this. And so that was um, something that they, they leveraged where 
they're like, well, we're just going to declare war on you, and it's just going to have to be that way. But the, it was like, France and England are at war in various parts in the book, and they're, they're basically just staring at each other, because, like, Britain doesn't have an army, but it has a navy, and France doesn't have a navy, but it has an army, and so they just kind of, like, stare at each other, and they don't do anything, and it's, like, it's kind of weird, and then eventually, like, England's able to bribe their way into getting, like, Russia and Austria and Prussia to declare war on uh, France, and that's what the various coalitions are about until they finally defeat Napoleon with, like, the Sixth Coalition or something like that, but that's outside of the scope of this book. Um, so it was really interesting to kind of see the obstruction, and you can kind of see it today with how um, America is treating the Russia-Ukraine situation or basically how they, this is just how they do politics, um, and it's very childish. It's, it's um, I don't know, it, it just kind of comes from a, a privileged place where you don't actually have to have to comport with re the realities of someone who has a border dispute does. And I don't know what's going to, like, I guess for America, if they split into several different countries, then that reality will become a thing. Uh, I guess the same thing could potentially go for Britain. Um, and then I guess Japan would be like the last island nation that's of any meaningful landmass, uh, or maybe... Uh, Australia, but most of Australia is a desert, so I don't know how settleable that is. Anyway, um, but that's that was really uh, interesting. Um, and Napoleon made a couple mistakes in regards to that. So um, but uh, one second, I gotta find the actual writings that I did on this. Here we go. Um, the Fr second war that France got into with Britain is interesting. Britain was determined to go to war with France, uh, and so no suggestion that they made uh, would be sufficient. It was very similar to how America acts now. The main issue is that France was always in a reactionary position to England, and so was never able to force them to actually compromise. So basically what had happened is uh, they came to an agreement in the treaty uh, that Britain was supposed to pull their troops off of Malta, and France was supposed to move their troops out of uh, Providence in Italy. Um, France ended up moving their troops out of that Providence, and Britain just, like, ref refused to uh, move their troops out. Of, and then they're, they're like, oh, well, the treaty, like, isn't ratified and shouldn't be uh, allowed. And they're just being like, um, it's actually something that Machiavelli talks about, where it's just like, if it's not in your favor, like, just ignore it and, and act like it's not a thing and, and just kind of kind of act obtuse like this um, until you kind of get your way. And it, in a certain way, it's petulant, but at the same, at, a, uh, at another level, like, it is a viable tactic for um, politics. At the same time, um, you know, you're, you can be, like, risking lives and stuff like that over, like, really petty stuff. It's just, it, I don't know, it's just kind of something kind of weird and off-putting about it. Um, maybe that's just various biases coming out. Um, but one of the things was, basically, Napoleon didn't have any uh, actual negotiating trips outside of escalating a war, which put him in a disadvantaged position. So England had basically all of the political chips to uh, play stuff out. And then on top of that, um, England at the time had a crazy good... Uh, propaganda machine, kind of like how America churns out uh, propaganda nowadays. Um, and so it was just kind of like a losing battle in that regard. 
uh, Napoleon's, uh, so basically, they're kind of going back and forth, and so Napoleon's like, well, then I'm going to reoccupy that area if you don't pull these uh, people out, but I don't think he should have asked England, he should have just done it, um, it was uh, Toulon, uh, Peninsula uh, was a sensible pursuit, uh, solution, but again, it felt like an issue of asking England for permission to do something, and you never ask, you always just do. Um, this move only would have brought things back to par, and so England would have never agreed. Uh, the other uh, risky option would have been simply to put your troops back on the peninsula and inform England that if they wished for them to be removed, then they uh, would have to abide by the treaty they signed, uh, else they would stay as long as Malta was illegally occupied. Uh, the risk is that you could easily be framed as being the aggressor and the one that started the conflict, which is what they did. Um, if one looks at how these obtuse obstructionist uh, powers operate, they typically have a pretty good propaganda wing of their government, and so they will be framed, uh, they will always frame you as the bad man regardless of your actions, so it's best to just force them to be reactionary through proactive solutions. Both Russia and China have been quite good at this. Uh, doing this when America does something outrageously belligerent in the current times. Um, and so that was something that, uh, it was an interaction that it's like, you know, uh, the times change, but nothing changes, um, or the years change, but nothing actually changes. And it, it's interesting to see how that political battle still plays out in the exact same way. Um, also, something kind of interesting was how the um, degradation of the uh, the degradation of America and stuff like that uh, looks a lot like uh, Britain, but or not Britain, uh, France, but it, how much time it might take uh, to play out. So it took 12 years of unrest uh, before an opportunity opened for Napoleon to seize power. Uh, being that the government collapse has yet to happen in America, it could be assumed that there is plenty of time before it does. The main note of difference here is that the turmoil in France uh, was a left-wing revolutionary due to the uh, push for equality and lots of other um, nonsensical type stuff uh, that they pushed, it inherently created more chaos uh, as disorder reigns the day. Uh, Right-wing reactions are typically about uh, order restoration, and so uh, take less time to establish themselves as legitimate governments. The problem is they will never create the chaos to begin with, which is why right-wing uh, governments generally have to wait for the left-wing to mess stuff up before they can take power, which is kind of weird. Um, Uh, even so, you need the left wing to create such disorder that the right wing can come in. Uh, I am unaware of a right wing revolution uh, who preempted a left wing revolution. Because the right prioritizes order, even if uh, order is very draconian, draconian, they will not revolt so long as the rules are known. In the current stage of things, the rules are unknown and draconian. Therefore, it creates chaos as people don't know what they could uh, be punished for and what uh, the rules are, and the rules are changing daily, and obviously it's, there's a political lens, it's like, are you, it's not, there aren't actually any rules, it's are you politically favored or not, <clears throat> which I guess is kind of a rule, but it's so vague and it can change so wildly that it's, it's, um, might as well not be any rules. Uh, the chaos eventually leads, uh, to enough being disenfranchised by the system that a new one, uh, the new one collapses, uh, or the old one is toppled, or both. Um, if 
In America, it seems that the option has been to build a new structure and let the old one fall away. Uh, these cycles take about 30 years to play out. Uh, Napoleon, uh, the Napoleonic era started in 1789 and lasted till 1815. Uh, the World Wars from 1914 to 1945. Uh, so the Napoleonic era was like 26 years and the World Wars was about 31 years. Uh, so depending on what history historians look back on and determine is the starting point for the decline, it will be about 30 years from there. Uh, the ca current candidates that we have are the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, which is 31 years today. Uh, the 9-11 uh, in 2001, which is 21 years. Uh, the GFC in 2008, which is 14 years ago. Uh, Trump's election in 2016, which was six years ago. Uh, COVID, which was two years ago. And the current financial collapse that we're currently experiencing, which is the current uh, year. Uh, this gives a range of historical epochs wrapping up between sometimes, uh, sometime in the next couple of years to about 2050. Uh, I doubt it will take until 2050, but there are a couple of key factors missing uh, for changing of the guard that you need. Uh, for There's a couple of key factors missing for changing of the guard. Uh, what you need is a failed elite, which we have, check. Uh, a change in historical trend towards, uh, away from what the elite want, check. Uh, an elite splinter group, uh, which we are currently missing. And a great man, which we are currently missing. Uh, Elon Musk and... Trump have been kind of framed as potentially those great men, but um, they're not. They're they've been put out there as false gatekeepers for that role to try to prevent the actual great men from rising up. Um, and th that's not something that was necessarily logically thought out by anyone, but it is how it played out. Uh, it's unclear how long these two missing. Uh, pieces will take to manifest themselves uh there is a chance that they never do and then the decline is slow uh grind downwards the parallel economy might be the splinter elite faction forming uh, it is just too early to determine what impact that will have in the long term on society as a whole though i think it is a great move regardless as even if everything else is grinding into poverty your world doesn't have to be uh if you have a communal network uh, that the parallel economy provides the reason I don't see the parallel economy being a splinter of the elite uh, faction is that it is uh, that it isn't taking uh, the standard overthrow approach. The parallel economy is looking to build a different structure. It's not looking to um, take the reins of power from those who already have it. They're like, I oh, will just do our own thing with kind of within the system, but kind of outside the system, um, right? Like you're you're it's outside the system in a sense in that you're outside the their institutions but it is still under the, it's not going outside the power dynamic of the law structure that is within the United States. And so in that regard, it is not a full splinter. Um, it's, it's not trying to usurp the power um, structure. Um, this might be, the reason I don't see the parallel kind of being a splinter faction is that it doesn't uh, take the standard approach of, overthrow uh this might be one of the reasons that it's successful in the long run as i think it um but i also think it leaves room for an elite splinter to form alongside uh the parallel economy movement <clears throat> uh as they're as they are complementary to each other uh elon musk uh while a gatekeeper and false elite splinter group is what a elite splinter group is going to look more akin to than uh and what is potentially going to actually take power than uh, what is being built in the parallel economy. I don't, 
see that as the exact thing. But maybe it will be. It'd be interesting to tell. Uh, uh, time will tell on that. Um, I guess one last little thing. This kind of jumps back to the earlier parts of Napoleon is, um, and this is kind of scattered right at this point, but also uh, it's kind of interesting to see how Napoleon had start, starts and stops to his career. Um, you know, early on, uh, he was kind of a loner uh, type guy and then uh, really just focused on studying and stuff like that. A lot of that had to do with the fact that he didn't have a lot of money to go out and do those things. So uh, he decided to focus on his studies uh, instead. And then after that, he uh, shot through and uh, became very successful, but then this caused animosity and stuff like that uh, within groups, and also uh, people felt that he was uh, politically threatening, which they ended up being correct on that front, but uh, worked in his favor anyway. And so he, there was, uh, because of the way the revolution was going and the constant changing of the political winds, he would be in power one day and he would be out of power the next. Um, and I think this is kind of, and but he was still very successful, and I think this is very uh, heartening to people who have gone through uh, the Cerveza sickness and <clears throat> all this other stuff where uh, one day we were kind of uh, out and maybe we couldn't even get a job and <clears throat> things didn't weren't looking up and, and we, were, we were really struggling and now things seem to be turning around and going better for us and stuff like that and just kind of understanding that, um, you know, you, you're not the only person in history that has had to deal with political situations where uh, because X, Y, or Z, you weren't allowed to feed your family or stuff like that and and the political winds were blowing against you and then for you and stuff like that, and you're, you're uh, kind of a wind vane of history. Uh, everyone is that to a certain extent, <clears throat> uh, even even great men as Napoleon. And so, uh, you know, you just got to kind of keep on the direction that you're going uh, and and uh, understand that sometimes when the, the current's blowing that direction, uh, you just got to keep moving in that direction as best you can and realize that sometimes uh, you're going to have to uh, take a side route for a little bit before you can get back on the main path. Um, so hopefully that's a, a bit of encouragement to, uh, those who, uh, feel like they're to a certain extent subject to the whims of the situation around them. Uh, we are to an extent, certain extent, but that doesn't mean that we aren't destined for greatness in our own right, um, as well. So hopefully you guys found that interesting and I'll, I'll leave you guys on that note. Uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, like, share, and subscribe. We're on uh, BitChute and YouTube, uh, and now Gab TV, um, and all of the places you can get podcasts: uh, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Podbean. Um, I distribute it to as, as many places as I can. So uh, wherever your preferred method is, uh, give it a listen, give it a like, and I uh, very much appreciate it. Thanks. Bye.